creepy song there to open the podcast. Were we aware of that song? I wasn't. No, I had no idea. And that seems weird because I actually like Soft Cell and of yeah. course I like spooky songs. So. That, is, that is spooky. That is Soft Cell. The song is Martin. Uh, not as well known as Tainted Love. Their big hit. But uh, there's a reason we're playing that song and we'll get to that as we do the Fright Club podcast. Welcome. I'm George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. And this is Fright Club and uh, we are from madwolf.com. Be sure to check us out for all the Recent movie reviews and shenanigans and uh, overall fun on the webpage there. And speaking of fun, we have to thank a little extra special thanks to our buddies at the Gateway Film Center this past week. But we really can't say why. No, we cannot. It's a big secret, but I just cannot thank. I can't thank the guys at the Gateway Film Center and, and I mean, everybody at the Gateway Film Center for helping me out this week. Uh, I was a big pain, and I didn't mean to be, but they were awesome and mission accomplished, so thank you so much. So is this something, will we ever be able to tell the tale? Is there a, a moratorium that will expire on this information? I don't know. I may eventually say something in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks out, we might cover something or other that's related, and maybe it'll slip. I don't yeah, know. the only reason we don't want to, because some, some people that we like, if we tell you what the deal is, we'll get in trouble. M- might get in trouble. Uh, with their employers, and we don't want that. So, yeah, we just want to say... So, a secret thank you. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know what you did, and we appreciate it because you're aces. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, the topic this week is George Romero. I I can't believe we haven't done George Romero yet. It does seem kind of funny, doesn't it? It does seem funny. We've talked about his films a lot. Oh, a million times. And, you know, just every, I don't know, like every eight or ten podcasts, we just like to stop and and just focus on one of the icons of horror, and he certainly is one of those. Yeah, he is. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about last week. We got a, I'll be honest, we got a bigger response than we expected for our theme of military horror. Which is funny. Yeah, I sat on that for a long time. I mean, I had those movies picked out forever ago, and I thought, I'm not sure anybody's going to care, but people did. Uh, The big winner was Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. Everybody loves seeing that on that list. Um, And it's a great movie. It really is. But we heard from a lot of people, Notorious EBD. Hey, welcome. I don't think we've heard from you before, actually. I like that handle. Yeah, it's awesome. Pointed out that they're remaking Jacob's Ladder, and all of us together, EBD, George, me, we're a little concerned about it. Fingers crossed. Well, when you say you're remaking a movie that we really like, that always gets your, you know, your back up a little bit to say, well... But sometimes it could come out true. well, you know, Absolutely. we try to reserve judgment, it's but true. I'm with you. I'm a little skeptical of that. But uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of love for Jacob's Ladder because that's one, if we have ever talked about it, it was very little. We didn't really ever get into it. No, not so, very much, yeah. no. And, uh, but then also another one. So first of all, welcome Corey Rabe. I don't think we've heard, I don't know, maybe. Oh, yeah. okay. he, he's checked in, Apologies. but it has been a while. So he wanted to see Mickey Keating's pod. And you know what? Um, I think I did kick that around for a minute. Um, uh, it, and it would have been a nice, at least to mention, because it's a it's about a more recent war. Anyway, so great, great notion. Thanks for pointing that out. Well, and also, wasn't Corey uh, the one that pointed out, uh, we talked about the song uh, Mad World. Yeah, 
from Gary we Jules. We totally forgot and that we it was... totally messed up that before it was in the remake of The Crazies, it had been used in Donnie Darko. Yeah, we totally forgot it was totally in Donnie Darko. Totally forgot about that. Although that does mean that you're right. It's definitely the first one of those pop songs that was slowed down for spooky effect, obviously, if it started Although, in Donnie Darko. Yeah, if you're not going to... It depends, I guess, if you're going to call Donnie Darko a horror movie. No, but it's definitely creepy. It is creepy. It's borderline horror. So anyway, Corey, thank you. We totally forgot about that because we love Donnie Darko. Um, and forgot that that song, that really spooky version of Mad World was in there. So thank you for that. Anyway, Speaking go ahead. of Corey's, yeah. senior Aussie correspondent Corey Metcalf, he brought one up that I completely just missed entirely. And it wouldn't have made the final list, but it would have been fun to mention, which is Child's Play 3. Totally forgot that that would be considered military horror. Totally forgot. And Dr. Uh, Dr. Neil Knackmack chimed in about Seasoning House. I have to admit, I have intentionally not seen that film. And he does kind of recommend it. I mean, it's it's grim and grisly in a particular way that I don't like to sit through, but he says it's kind of worth it. And then also, okay. he had some recommendations for this week's list. Oh, he did for yeah. um, for the Romero list. And uh, he chimed in about all of these, or what did he say? No, no, he had a couple that he was oh, okay. hoping to see that he's going to probably see. So, <laughs> <laughs> No spoilers, okay. Neil, but yeah, it's going to work out for you. Because I think what we found... In this countdown, uh, I don't know if you agree that when you're getting even five Romero movies, you get one, two, three, okay, and then it starts to slide off the cliff a little bit. Well, I mean, I wouldn't go slide off the cliff, but and this is the same way with a lot of, you know, we've I've looked at, you know, sort of putting together a list like this for a lot of filmmakers, even the great ones, John Carpenter. I mean, even the great ones, you get two or three that are like slams. Yes, absolutely. And then you find that you have like seven or eight movies that you're sort of bouncing around for the last two slots that are, yeah, okay, they're all right. And that's definitely the case here. Yeah. So, uh, so there are going to, I'm just going to tell you a couple that I thought might possibly make the list. What, and this one I probably should have put on there because people will be like, what? But 1972 made a movie called Season of the Witch. It's actually originally called Hungry Wives. And it's it's for the 70s. Wasn't, for the, that, wasn't that by Eric Carmen? <laughs> that was in Dirty I'll Dancing. I'll give you a dollar to sing it right now. That was in Dirty Dancing, wasn't <laughs> no, it? No, no. Anyway. Hungry Wives. Oh, my mistake. <laughs> Go ahead. So it's um, it's not great. It's very heavy-handed with its social commentary, and it's a it's an early '70s stab at feminism. But I I've always enjoyed the movie Season of the Witch. There are like 90 movies called Season of the Witch. I like Romero's. It almost made the list. A couple of others that almost made the list. Early '70s stab at feminism equals brawless. There's yeah, epic brawlessness, <laughs> rampant brawlessness in this film. Love the '70s. <laughs> Love the '70s. So anyway, there you know, I mean, there are a bunch in here that I think people uh, might be expecting, and then there are others I don't know that that maybe we'll just mention as also Rands. Okay. Um, but but that uh, season of the witch was the closest to swapping out this number five. And George says I'm pandering because he knows I'm not a huge fan of the movie we have at number five. I'm I, not either. Uh, I mean, I don't dislike it, but I I've I've. Anyway, but I knew, I figured a lot of you wanted to see it here, so it beat out Season of the Witch by a hair, so number five. Pandering. <laughs> From 1982, it's Creepshow. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids. And shiver at the doings of evil doctors. Creepshow, the most fun you'll ever have being scared. Yeah, I gotta admit, I'm I'm just not a real not a lot of love here for this for this movie. But I know a lot of people do have love. 
Yeah, I think I like it better than you do. And as and I've mentioned before, I'm not a giant fan of uh, short compilations. And actually, when we had Jason Tostevin on here a couple a couple weeks ago, this movie in particular came up. Is that I'm not as big a fan of this movie as a lot of people are. But I used to love the HBO show Tales from the Crypt. Right. I loved it. And it's very similar. I mean, it's incredibly similar to this film. And so I think I do like it a little bit more than you do. And um, and there's a gr- the cast is crazy. So Tom Atkins. Right. Uh, I think all of us listening love Tom Atkins, but also some and then a couple of other, um, you know, Stephen King is in it. Galen Ross, a couple of other uh, horror people, Adrian Barbeau, people that you're used to seeing in horror, but then some great. Right. Hal Holbrook, Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson. Um, I, there are so many really solid actors in Ed Harris in this movie. You're like, how how did that happen? And you know that Leslie Nielsen is a pro because on the set, he had a fart machine in his pocket <laughs> and he would let it go off during the rehearsals. And just before Romero would call action. So, uh, and, and Ted Danson and the crew had a hard time keeping it together. <laughs> so that is a filmmaker, Leslie Nielsen. I look at him. I, he's a guy. Yeah. That's a guy that would carry around a fart machine. In Absolutely. His yeah. Definitely. No question. Definitely. No question about it. And you know, and as, as the anthology type thing goes, you know, I mean, what I think that Romero really brought to this, there had been a lot of anthology type horror films before 1982 but I think what he brought was the comic book sensibility, which then I think people realized, recognized was an important thing to bring to the table yeah, and yeah. then did afterwards. But the visuals, the the framing devices, but also the sort of mean spirited humor and juvenile sense of justice. Um, and, and of course, Stephen King wrote he wrote a couple of these directly for the screen. He wrote the screenplay based on short stories he had written. So obviously you've got a seasoned professional there. And it's kind of cool to think of the two of them, Romero and King, working together. Yeah, but it's funny because this is the only I believe this is the only Romero film where he didn't write it. Right. Didn't have a hand in it. And you know, it's funny. He Romero wrote Creepshow, too, but then didn't direct it. So funny. it suffers mm. there. Mm. And one of the things you, I don't know if you caught or not in the um, story number three, the crate. Mm-hmm has on it, ship to Julie Carpenter from Arctic Expedition. <laughs> nice. There's a little nod to the thing. Little nod. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> so I, I love those little, those little uh, you know, Easter eggs, I guess you'd yeah. call it, if you'd call that an Easter egg. But yeah, um, I can't say that I'm down on anthologies totally, but, no. but this one, yeah, just does. I give you that, though. I definitely think that Romero brings the comic book sensibilities, yeah. which which are important, but I just, for some, maybe I have to watch it again. I don't, I don't have know, a lot know, of great memories here's of what this. I think. Here's what I think, is that he nailed the tone. He nailed the appropriate tone for this, right? It just isn't our bag, right? It's it's a comic book style. It's a, you know what I mean? And he did. He did a great job with it. And a lot of the, you know, there there's something memorable about a lot of these. Actually, the Leslie Nielsen one, I that was always my favorite. And then the, the last one. They're creeping up right, on you. The, before they go back to the epilogue, they're creeping up on you, the one with the bugs. Uh, that one always stuck with me when I was a kid when I saw this because it was just nasty. Um, and, of course, you have to say after watching this that Stephen King, stick to writing, my friend. Yeah. Please do that. But also mm. Galen Ross. Did you mention Galen yes. Ross? Okay, because she's a, in... St- a, 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 a George Romero oh, regular. Romero regular favorite that we'll talk about a little bit later. So that's number five, a very... Half-hearted recommendation, no, I guess. No, not all half-hearted. Right. Okay, all no, right. but For I mean, me. there were okay. There were a couple of others. So, like, there were a couple of others that are are mediocre films. To I mean, so the dark half, right? A lot of people really love the dark half. Timothy Hutton. A lot of people really love that. That's got a great cast. That's got an incredibly talented cast. It just kind of left me cold. I felt. But then the other one that I think people remember so much better than I do, like. I mean, more positively than I do is Monkey Shines. Oh, yeah. That one is so heavy handed with the metaphors and then just so 
badly just the acting is. Though, although I always did kind of like the poster. <laughs> yeah. No, it's With true. That toy monkey. Yeah, it was yeah, kind yeah. of kind of freaky. Yeah, but yeah. no, I gotta. Uh, so those were a couple that I remember just going. Well, people like now. I but so anyway. So anyway, we went with creep show. Okay, number five, creep show. Moving up to number four. Now, last week, if you remember, we talked about the remake of this that we are both very high on, and we didn't talk. We didn't intentionally talk about this one because we knew we were going to be talking about it now. So we'll do that. And it's from 1973, the original, The Crazy. Something that dements. Something that inflames. Something that brutalizes. It's madness unleashed by human error. Could it happen? Get me the president. More important, could it happen here? Could a whole community be infected by violent madness? The state against the people? You had better see the crazies. This is the first movie, this is the first horror movie he made after Night of the Living Dead. And, you know, what's fascinating is because if you think about it in the time that it came out, Night of the Living Dead established the the zombie genre. It established it, right? It stole it from the idea of, like, sort of the voodoo, mindless, you know, uh, sort of walking dead creature that somebody else controlled. And it turned it into something else entirely. But so what he did with the crazies is basically take this same concept, right, of a mindless, uncontrollable horde, but he made it more political and more unpredictable because what happens is there's a, there's a chemical spill, right? Military blunder caused a chemical spill in a small Pennsylvania town. And the, those who are contaminated lose their minds. They go insane. And it's a fascinating idea for a movie. Yeah. And it's interesting too, when we talk about the, um, the song mad world that was used in the, uh, in the remake, the basis of this movie was a script by Romero's friend and co-worker Paul McCullough, and that script was entitled The Mad People. <laughs> and and uh, he gave the script to Romero and, and gave him his blessing to rewrite it, and, and Romero turned out a revised version, and that became The Crazies. But yeah, the basis is mad people, a mad world. Yeah, absolutely. But, but you know, with Romero at the helm, he, he made his, his preoccupations with government corruption and uh, his disdain for the war in Vietnam, he turned that into the main themes of this film because your main, your main character protagonists are Vietnam veterans, you know, and again, it's military blunder and it's, it's, it's a government and military force that you can't trust. Um, and for me, um, I think it might be a little heavily weighted in that area, which is not, it's Agreed, not like that's yeah. not interesting. It's just that it's not scary. Um, but when he focuses just on the insanity angle, it is so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable because I think that that is a primal fear that people have is the idea that either they will lose their minds and not that. And if you lose your mind, you don't know it or they'll be treated as if they have and they'll be they won't have any control over that fact, which uh, so those two sort of fears really keep the dread high in this. And then. And then there's the other sort of voyeuristic step back of watching what other people do when they go crazy and how unsettling that is. And he doesn't pull a lot of punches in that respect. I mean, he doesn't have everybody carrying a shotgun to a softball game. I mean, he's got people doing crazy ass shit in this movie. <laughs> well, I agree that I think it is uh, it gets a bit heavy handed in that message. But you have to step back and, and look at it. It was 1973. Yeah. And- the Vietnam War was coming to an end. Yeah. Things were really coming to a head politically with the, the younger people feeling that they really had a hand in ending this war. Yeah. And so I guess you can kind of see it. 
um, why he might have done that. But um, I think that, so I guess we're give, kind of giving it a pass on that, considering the context, considering yeah. the time. But I think you're right about that. But also, um, you're right in the way um, the other the other themes work and the dread and the different ways that you can be affected by the, the crazy. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's got a lot of the same uh, themes. Like I said, as a zombie movie, there's the, the fear of contamination, right? And then there's the, the mindless horde. And, and, um, and I think that, you know, henceforth, filmmakers use the concept of a zombie to represent, and you could represent almost anything, right, metaphorically with, with, with zombies. And, and he, it's like he already realized that. He was the first to do it, but he already realized it. So he just took all those concepts to represent basically, yeah, um, uh, questioning your allegiance to authority and, and, and you know, making you, making you think about how uh, valuable authoritarianism is and things like that. Um, um, but also... It's almost it's not exactly Cronenberg like, but he he really hits a nerve with how uncomfortable it makes you watching somebody else do something that because if they don't just right off the bat get crazy, they work their way toward it. And it is so uncomfortable, yeah. especially, you know, in the famous scene between the father and daughter. It's so you're like, this yeah. isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen, you know, and it's. um Yeah. Yeah, it's just very unsettling. And uh, in case you miss it, uh, he makes, Romero himself makes two cameos in the film. First, he's one of the locals being herded into the high school. And sec- and uh, secondly, he's the head of the President of the United States on a monitor screen. He <laughs> supplies the head. Much like Larry David was uh, George Steinbrenner's <laughs> head in Seinfeld. Kind of the same thing. So, I don't know. I still have to say I prefer the remake. How about you? I think I do prefer the okay. remake, although because it's 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 slicker and it's but I mean, the I got to say, I like the ending. Oh, I like Romero's ending better. OK, um, it's right. it's more yeah. cynical. It's grimmer. It's more nightmarish. Yeah. And and uh, I just like the way he pulls up. So I do prefer his I prefer his ending. Yeah, that's fair. OK, that's number four. The 1973 original uh, version of the crazies. Moving up to number three, and this is where we get into the song that we used to open this, because I have to admit, I was having a tough time. What song are we going to use for George Romero? And then I found out this little tidbit, the movie Martin from 1977. My name is Martin. I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. Martin, another kind of terror. From the director of Night of the Living Dead, Martin, another kind of terror. So yeah, a few years after this movie, in the early 80s, Soft Cell followed up their big uh, top 40 hit, uh, Tainted Love, with this, Martin. They did a song definitely inspired by this movie. And when you listen to the words, you can definitely see that. It's kind of a creepy song for a creepy movie. You know, they also do a song called Sex Dwarf. Uh, no, I didn't. That... Uh, I have to say I'm not a big Soft Cell fan, <laughs> but I will look that up and get back to you. <laughs> so I don't, I mean, this one, uh, definitely underseen, you know, and, and I, I really enjoy this movie. It's It doesn't have... It, it doesn't have Romero's thumbprints all over it. I mean, it's it's a very different tone, a different, you know, I think that you can see Stephen, Season of the Witch a little bit in this movie, but it's much more of a character study than anything else he ever did. And I think it's, it, although it's, it does get gory and it is intense in a lot of spaces, 
it's softer. It's more tender than than most of what else he has done. And of course, Romero does make a cameo, and this as a priest, which is funny. Yeah, and he has said the I guess the original cut ran two hours and forty five minutes, which is hard to believe. But uh, he has later confirmed um, that there is no known existing copy of that cut. Apparently, he confirmed that at a at a, a screening in New York City that the original almost three hour long cut does not exist. But it did it one time. Mm. Interesting. That's yeah. a lot of filler, man. It is man. a lot. Yeah, I mean, because uh, the film doesn't feel short as it is. Yeah, it can you imagine? Yeah. No. But yeah. I mean, I, I really, I love the way that, I, I mean, so so Martin, uh, kind of a lonely young man, he's being shipped off, we don't know where from, to go live with his curmudgeonly old uncle in Pittsburgh. So there's just this bleak it's urban landscape. It's always Pittsburgh, but isn't it's it? It's always <laughs> Pennsylvania anyway. But this one has a very, it like really mines that bleak urban landscape. And, um, and, you know, Martin kind of has these dreams of, like, mobs with pitchforks and, you know, candelabras and cloaks and everything. And you think that it's just dreams until the uncle, who is much more, Martin is more of a whimsical sort of dreamy character, but the uncle is not. He's, and, and, uh, and he's, he, he says that he's not Martin's uncle. Martin is one of his older ancestors and is actually in his 80s. So you start to think, well, are, is Martin crazy? Because he clearly thinks he's a vampire. Or are these really memories, and is he actually a vampire? And then that whole sort of storyline is set inside. So the uncle and his daughter live there, and the daughter is just this nice, sweet person dating Tom Savini, who's not a good boyfriend. (laughs) Anyway, and you just, you know, it is. It's a character study. You watch things kind of unravel. You're never 100% certain. Is Martin crazy, or is Martin a vampire? But what he is, John Amplis plays Martin. He's a very sweet, lonesome, sympathetic character. So no matter what bad things he does, and he does some bad things, you can't root against him. He's almost like a you know Norman Bates. You're like, no, he's not a bad guy. Yes, he killed some people, but you just don't <laughs> want him to get in trouble. Yeah, and this movie changed in a couple of drastic ways from when it first uh, got into production. Originally, Romero's original script had Martin's character as an older person who was already established as a vampire kind of struggling to live in the in the modern world. But then Romero saw John Amplis uh, in a play on stage and was so impressed by the actor that he rewrote the character specifically with Amplis in mind and then made Martin a younger and a much more innocent character. And on top of that, the film originally was going to have a lot more voiceover narration, like there is in the trailer. Yeah. Uh, but then they decided, and I think probably wisely, that the narrative was strong enough without the voiceover, so they dropped it. Because, I definitely, yeah. that's definitely the case, because yeah. I think it is that, along with some really good performances and some um, some really it just nicely filmed pieces, um, it's the ambiguity that makes, right. makes the movie stand out. Because so often in narration, all that does is lead the audience to, it tells you where to go. Plus, it's, yeah, it's a cheat. It's a cheat, and it supplies so much that is much more effective when, you discover it for yourself exactly, and, and, and get, like you said, a little more ambiguity in there is almost always, always the better way to go. So I definitely think so in here as well. And yeah, John Amplis pops up. Well, he pops up in a couple more of the movies we're going to talk about on the rest of this list. But he became he quickly became a Romero favorite. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and you always love that because, uh, you know, uh, Romero fans, we watch all of his movies, right? We watch them all and we love to see, oh, who's going to pop up as the televangelist on the TV and who's uh-huh. going to be, you know, who's going to be zombie number nine and who's going to be the elevator operator or whatever. It's just always fun to see the same, you know, character actors show up in different but memorable scenes. Yeah. So 
That is Martin, one that I wasn't really too familiar with, and certainly wasn't familiar with the song uh, before looking into it, but that is number three from 1977. So you know one and two are going to have some sort of of the dead (laughs) in the title. That's a given. And at number two from 78, Dawn of the Dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. They must be destroyed on sight. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead makes number two, and that means there were more than a few of the deads that uh, didn't make it at all. Right, and I don't know how many people are going to be unhappy about that because I think we can all agree that the uh, the Dead series probably went on longer than it should have. You know, and In fact, I bet there are a lot of people who are not that familiar with the whole series because there's, of course... After Dawn of the Dead came Day of the Dead, then came Land of the Dead in 2005, then came Diary of the Dead in 2007, and then came Survival of the Dead in 2009. Um, and, uh, and, and each one is successively worse than the one before it. I didn't, Actually, I did not mind Land of the Dead, um, but uh, it's, it's not great. Day of the Dead, you know, was another one that I flirted with in number five. Um, but uh, while I think there are a lot of great things about it, um, it, the whole thing started to feel stale to me by even that third installment. So, but but Dawn of the Dead is actually a really big, uh, you know, change in direction. And Dario Argento and Tom Savini the th- worked alongside um, Romero in that film, and you can you can really feel their presence in that movie so much. So it's very um, it's very political. Again, it's it's very much sort of a you know, a finger wagging at, at 80s consumerism, and that's clearly all Romero. But there's also the vivid gore and blood that is Argento, and also Savini, because he's the, he's the FX guy who put it all together. Very much so. And Argento influenced this movie because Argento heard that when Romero was contemplating doing a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, he insisted that Romero come out to his uh, native Rome and write the script without any sort of distractions at all. So Romero did that and knocked out the script in three weeks and I guess Argento read the script as it came out, but he left all the writing to Romero, and, he all, and Argento also provided most of the film's soundtrack. And in return mm-hmm. for the rights to edit the European version of the film, he uh, assisted in raising necessary funds. So he was all, I mean, he insisted, he didn't have anything to do with the writing, but he was involved with, the, I guess, the creation, you might say, because he was a big admirer. And that's, like you just said, easy to see. Oh, yeah. You can, you can see Argento all over this movie. Um, and, 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 and actually the fact that he did have such a, such a hand in the score because Argento scores are, um, which are usually goblins, but I mean, you know, one of his movies right away. And so there are so many ways that you can just feel his presence in this movie, which is interesting because it kind of bridges the American, um, zombie film. And, you know, by the eighties, Italians were making their own zombie films, Lucio Fulci in particular, and they were much gorier and much more colorful. And there were all the entrails, which that made an impression in this one because it's very gory. There's a lot of entrails, and it's of course the original is black and white, so this one is in color. I have to say, nah, it doesn't date the 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 Savini effects don't date hugely well because because this is if you remember this is the one of all of these where the zombies basically have chalk faces with blue. Like I mean, they look ridiculous, right? And Savini 
acknowledges that, but he did it because of the Night of the Living Dead being in black and white. He chose, he wa- he was going for a gray color of the zombie's skin because of the original black and white, but then it was a mistake, and he admits that because, as you just said, many of them ended up looking quite blue yeah. on film. So he had a he had a method, he had something he was going for, didn't quite get there, and looking back on it, everybody agrees, eh, didn't work. But that's, you know, one of the few things. I mean, it stands out. It, it does, It dates, yeah. it. It dates yeah. the film, but and it does stand out. But it's one of the few things that didn't work. I mean, the whole concept of these survivors who, who take a chopper to a mall, and then you figure if you can hole up in the mall, you're going to be fine for a long, long time. It's a great idea because, first of all, it does seem like a safe haven. And second of all, um, it, it allowed him, it allowed Romero to, again, uh, make comments about the consumerism of, of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I've mentioned before, what's funny is that they filmed in the uh, Monroeville Mall, and they filmed at night after the, after the mall was closed, around 10 o'clock, but they had to finish filming by 6 a.m. Now, the mall didn't really open for business until 9, but the Muzak came on at 6 automatically, and no one knew how to turn it off. <laughs> so they only had till 6, which I think is hilarious. That is really funny. One of the things that I think is interesting about this movie is I feel like in parts, you know, he tried to um, to grow some of the strengths from Night of the Living Dead. And then in other places, I feel like he was trying to make corrections because as much as I love Judith O'Dea, that character, that female lead in Night of the Living Dead is such a weak, nothing character that I feel like he was trying to make strides uh, with. Well, the Galen, Galen Ross, Ross character. character. I can't remember. Fran- yeah. Francine? Francis? Francine? Anyway, Galen Ross character. Yeah, and I think she w- had a hand in that, too. If you, um, Depending on who you believe, she was really instrumental in just that, for, uh, making sure that her character was a strong female character. She's still kind of an idiot, but she's better. But you know what is, what is actually interesting? Tom Savini, of course, f- uh, filmed a remake of Night of the Living Dead a few years later, and and that was really the only major change he made is he actually gave us an honest to God, badass female heroine, which was nice. I mean, mm-hmm. it was nice. And I, and I like that about his version. I'm not sure that I would. I mean, I don't think I don't think the female lead in Dawn of the Dead is certainly not as strong as the female lead in the remake of Dawn of the Dead. Right. I was just going to bring that up because overall, that's another remake that we like. Love. Yeah. That's yeah. a great movie. Yeah. I like that a lot. The remake. But no, the original. Dawn of the Dead from 1978 checks in at number two in our George Romero countdowns, and that can only leave one at the top. And you know that. It is the classic, the original, the icon from 1968, Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock. More shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! The film that contains one of my all-time favorite pieces of dialogue. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I love it for so many reasons. Romero has... Acknowledge this is heavily influenced by Carnival of Souls. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, then, it set a new standard and begin, began influencing everybody else. Yes, it absolutely did. And I think that, I mean, I don't think that it's wrong to say it's the first of its own kind of zombie film, right? Because, like I said, you know, you, you get, like, um, White Zombie from 1933, I think, which I think everybody accepts as the first zombie movie, but mm. that with Bela Lugosi. But that was the voodoo style. They're dead. They're mindless. They come back. They serve one master. This was the first one where they were, it was, it came, the idea 
of hordes who were going to kill you and you were going to come back. They were going to kill you and contaminate you. I mean, it was a fascinating, terrifying idea. And and again, so you've got the monsters, you've got the threat. Um, but but the bigger threat is the human population. That has influenced so many sci-fi and horror films since mm-hmm. that came out. You can't. I mean, it's it's count. You can't count them. It's it's one of the greatest, biggest influences on horror of any concept that anybody's ever introduced. Yeah, and then you cannot overstate the effect of Dwayne Jones, a black man in the lead in the lead role. Uh, nineteen sixty-eight. Think about the 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 civil unrest that was going on, and we've talked about this before. And and Dwayne Jones. Uh, apparently being such a such a thoughtful, intelligent man and heavily influenced how He's a PhD, a college professor. Yes, just just yes, just a very, very impressive man and uh brought things to the role. Now, you know, Romero has said that he wasn't going after that social commentary in his casting of Jones. It's just that he was just the best actor. And you and you've said before on this podcast, you don't know how much you buy that. Right. But regardless, the fact is it makes it on the screen. You've got by the end, you've got a black man in a house with a white woman being attacked by a horde of zombies. I mean, that's a statement, especially in 1968. Oh, yeah. Everything about this movie, you know, I mean, it touches on so many of the of the social political unrest elements going on at the time. And um, and, and Dwayne Jones is, is absolutely brilliant. He really is. He's so commanding in this film. And um, and then the, and then, you know, you get to that absolutely perfect absolutely horrifying ending you know and and it's just such a gut punch but god it's a great movie yeah and it was so necessary um yeah an ending like that i think it makes this makes it so much more yeah gut punch so much it resonates so much more um that it's it's just it achieves that that iconic status and probably why it's it's hung around for so long and you mentioned the the performance it is great and uh, even though you don't like the character i mean judith o'day we, we love her she's adorable yeah <laughs> we got a chance to meet her at horror hound one time she is a pip as she we've said great. several times yeah. oh and you know what i just noticed too uh this one of course filmed in pittsburgh it, it might be the first i think this has goes on record as being the first movie shot uh in pittsburgh mm. uh but anyway um the guy that played the television reporter uh bill cardell cordial uh, was a, a local TV, and he just died. Aww. I just saw that on Facebook a few, and I wait a minute, that guy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he he was he played the the um, TV reporter, and he just passed away. So uh, they used a, he got some great lines. He did, yeah. That's the thing, man. Uh, you know, um, um, this movie has so many classic lines, classic lines, um, and and the news reporters tend to be my favorite, my <laughs> no. favorite bits of dialogue. He was great, you know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can, uh, they go, you can light them on fire. Oh, they go right they up. They go right up, yeah. yeah. Love that, love that. But it's, uh, yeah, it's it works for frights. It works for shocking, you know, maybe not today, but back then, yeah. oh my Lord. And it's just so socially relevant. And it's Everything so... about it. And and, in a, and now I feel like in a lot of Romero's later films, he's more heavy-handed. I don't think he is in this movie. I agree. I think it's a very natural, which is one of the reasons why it sticks around. I definitely agree. It is very socially relevant, but doesn't feel like it's going out of its way to right. try to do that. Nope. Yeah, uh, and that's just one of the reasons why, uh, again, that it's it's achieved such a su- such an iconic status and will forever be there, uh, even if he, you know, even if he never did anything else. Right. I mean, even this, if that was, even if it was a one and done. Yeah, this is a big one, and it is also one of the. It was 
one of the most, at least at the time, uh, probably still, one of the most successful independent films yeah. ever made, and one of the last big hits of the drive-in era. Oh. Can you imagine seeing this at the drive-in? Oh, that'd be awesome. When it came out? How cool would that be? Super cool. Oh, man. That's how cool. Yeah, especially when you're sitting out there, <laughs> out in the open, and then they have those shots of all the, you know, the, the zombies kind of coming at you through yeah. those open fields, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, Getting that feel through the drive-in, that would be great. So, yeah, of course, you talk about George Romero. That is number one, Night of the Living Dead from 1968. But you know what? If you're a fan of some of the other of the deads, let us know how this countdown feels to you. Uh, Twitter is the best way to do that, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Keep the conversation going on Twitter, and uh, we got to give a little shout-out once again to the next edition of Fright Club Live. We're very excited about this. It's coming up very soon, August the 10th, Wednesday, right back at Gateway Film Center, High Street in Columbus, Ohio. We are going to show Martyrs on the big screen. Can you handle it? I can't wait. I mean, I can't wait. And I do think that this is going to be a tough one for a lot of people, but you should, you know what? Gird your loins and come out for it, because it is a great movie. It's not just one of those, like, tests of character, uh, I've made it through. You know, yeah. it's it's a great, great film. Yeah, it's going to be good. And uh, we are working on those martyrs merit badges for everybody <laughs> that does make it through. And, of course, as usual, at Fright Club Live, we'll tape the podcast live in front of the crowd, and we're going to talk about see the original, not the remake. That's right. That's so going to be our list. That should be a goodie, too. So looking forward to that. Also, um, Saturday's Saturday Screamer. Hope has the Saturday Screamer edition, featurette. Featurette. Featurette uh, every Saturday, screenrelish.com. Yeah, especially recently, I have tried to draw attention to some horror films that, that have come out in the last two years that may have, like, flown under the radar that are really, really worth looking. Now, that's not what I always do, but that's what I've done the last couple of weeks, probably what I'm going to do for maybe the balance of the summer. All right, good stuff. And we'll always post those on our Facebook page as well, which is at facebook.com slash Mad Wolf Columbus. So a lot of ways to check in next week. What are we doing next week? You know what? I'm kind of up in the air. Here are our thoughts. So let, let us know. Let us know which one you're looking for, okay? When animals attack is an option, right? Wicked steps. So stepmother, stepfather, stepsister, stepbrother, wicked steps. That's another one I'm kicking around right, right for next week. But here's the one I'm really leaning toward. And this is inspired by um, our senior old lady bush correspondent, Bridget's tattoo. Mm-hmm. So I'm leaning toward um, best horror movie dance scenes. Oh, yes. So tell, tell me, tell me, somebody choose for me. Which of those three are we going to go All right, there you go. Let us know on Twitter, at Mad Wolf. Um, is it going to be Wicked Steps? Is it going to be When Animals Attack? Or is it going to be horror movie dance scenes? A couple come to mind right off the bat. I know, but is that too niche? Would people even care? It's niche, but so what? <laughs> um, we can get niche. Get niche with the best of them. All right, <laughs> let us know. Until then, uh, I'm George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Stay frightful, my friends. And stay niche. <laughs> Martin needs his strange obsession to exist.